You're listening to the Scottsdale Podcast, which features our Sunday sermons. If you would like to learn more about what God is doing in the life of Scottsdale Baptist Church, visit our website at scottsdale.org. Enjoy and be challenged by the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, Scottsdale. It's great to see all of you here this morning. Those of you in the Cross Point Center, thank you for joining us. We want to give you kind of an update. We opened the Cross Point Center last week, a week earlier than we needed to. We had 150 people in there, packed out here, and we're doing the same thing again this morning. Um, and we're doing the same thing at 11 o'clock, 11 o'clock in here and the Cross Point Center. We were doing some calculations between the two um, service times that we have in two venues allows us for up to 2,000 people. We're only 350 away from really maxing out all of these areas. And so we're continuing to thank God for the growth that he's bringing to us and thank you for being here. If you're a first-time guest, my name is Phil Ortigo. I serve as a senior pastor and uh, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Those of you who are joining us online, thank you for inviting us to a your homes. We want to invite you here. Even though we have limited space, I'd love for you to come and be a part with us. Well, we're in our third week of this series that we call The Elephant in the Room. And we've been looking at some of the toughest issues that we're having to deal with in our culture and trying to tackle some of these difficult issues. And we've been talking about a number of these different things, and I've kind of set the ground rules that this is not a series for us to jump out and to applaud and to create a bunch of hype and a political rally or anything like that. It's simply to listen to the issues of our culture and to see what God's word has to say about those and how do we take the word of God, apply it to our lives and answer those issues and make an impact in our culture. We began um, three weeks ago talking about, no, two weeks ago, the importance of authority in our life and we've discerned that it is the word of God that is our biblical authority. It's absolute truth, it's inspired, it's inerrant, it's infallible, it's the authoritative word of God which we should use as believers for life and practice. And, and that word of God becomes the filter for all of our life. For whatever we feel, whatever we think, whatever we're exposed to, it is filtered in the word of God. But what has happened over time is people have taken the philosophies of culture, their own personal opinions, their own personal convictions, and they've created their own template for their life. And their own template has become their authority. And when it comes to the word of God, what they'll do is rather than placing the word of God and filter everything through it, their template becomes the filter. And the word of God is placed over that. And what they like about the word of God, they keep. And what they don't like, they jettison and put aside. So whenever you create your own template, what happens is the word of God does not become authoritative truth. The word of God is nothing but an advisory tool that you can leave or take. And the problem is you ultimately will drift into the culture's way of thinking. But for the believer... The word of God is to be that. And any template of our life is to be placed upon the word of God. And the word of God filters all of that out. I do not study the Bible with my mind made up. I study the Bible that it will make up my mind. And the word of God is to be that. And if we don't have that as our authority, then we cannot hold to a biblical worldview. And then we'll be swept aside by all of the currents and the tsunamis of our culture helping us to shape what they tell us is true rather than standing on the authoritative truth of God's word. So we begin there. 
And last week we talked about race and racism. And what does God's word say about that? And I would just say, if you missed that message, go online, listen to that, and hear what God's word has to say about that as well. But today we're going to be talking about a topic that I believe of all the topics we're going to talk about can be the most emotionally charged. That's why I'm wearing a camouflage shirt so you do not see me today. Uh, but, 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 but what I want us to see is as we deal with this issue of politics and we deal with the issue of Christians in government, there have been stances throughout history. And there have been a number of people and governments and regimes that have stood against Christianity being involved in the public sector. For example, Marx and Freud both believe the same thing. That for people, Christianity is nothing but an escapism, an opiate for the masses, and Christians are absolutely not useful for society at all. Then you've got communists who say that we cannot have Christianity in our government and our politics because they oppose what we teach, and therefore they must be silenced and contained. And then you might have secular humanism in our own culture that says Christianity must be ousted from all public arena, from education, from entertainment, from sports, from schools, everything. Christianity is to have no rules, separation of church and state. And then what we find is that there's some Christians who feel like, you know what, I really shouldn't be a part of this culture, so what do we do? We pull back into our monasteries or we find some little Amish conclave to hide in. And so that way we're silent. And then there's been the re, a, a result in history where the church has believed that the kingdom of God should be taken by force. And during those times, there were the unfortunate times of the Crusades and the Inquisitions where thousands of people were murdered and put to death in the name of Christ unjustly. And then we deal with our own time. We deal with what's happening in our own culture. And if a Christian begins to speak out about patriotism or speak out about um, Judeo-Christian ethics or speak about the foundation of this country's formation, then people will call them Christian nationalist. And then what happens is there's, there's this gaslighting that takes place and people get out of shape. And then there's some Christians that cross the line from national state to being confused of what Christianity really is. And then what they can end up doing is they, they wrongly confuse Christianity with a party or the Declaration of Independence with the gospel or the American dream with the kingdom of God. And then what happens is we find ourselves in difficult places. Not to mention the political climate of our day where two of the top candidates for president are both having their own struggles right now. Both of them have their, their, their investigations taking place in their lives. One's being investigated for bribery, for money laundering, for um, peddling influence to foreign countries. The other has been indicted in four different indictments, 91 charges against him. 
And there seems to be a two-tier system of justice that we're seeing before our eyes that whoever's in party and power at the moment seems to be calling the shots and we see these coordinated events of one giving information about one party and the other bringing an indictment toward the other party. And for the first time in the history of our nation, we have two candidates and the one who lose quite possibly will go to jail. We've never been in a place in the history of our nation where we have been so divided, so disgusted, so upset with what's happening, and then asking the question, what is the believer supposed to do? Ronald Reagan made a wonderful statement. He said he can't understand why any good and sensible person would ever enter politics. He said, after all, think of the word politics. The word poly means many. The word ticks means blood-sucking creatures. And so Washington's filled with many blood-sucking creatures seeking control. <laughs> Boy, was he ever right. So what do we do? Where do we go? Again, we're going to the word of God. What we're going to do this morning is going to look at what God's word has to say to you and me about our role in government and how do we deal with the issue of politics? How do we deal with all of the issues of our day as a body of Christ? And how do we move in a way that honors Christ? So we're going to look at a lot of scriptures today, but we're going to begin with the words of Jesus himself. Because you might be surprised to learn that Jesus has a lot to say about government and our involvement in such. In fact, the passage that we're going to look at this morning is a key passage that has been used to develop a theology of understanding a Christian's role in government and how we are to bring about the righteousness of God on earth. So take your Bibles, open to the Gospel of Mark, the second book in the New Testament. We're going to look at chapter 12, verses 13 through 17. And as we look at these passages, it's, a, it's, a, it's an incredible passage. You're familiar with the passage, but you may not be familiar with the reality that that has been the key passage for many theologians to understand what our role is. While you're turning there, let me set the scene for you. It's the last week of Jesus' ministry on earth. It's, it is um, on Sunday that he rides in on, on Palm Sunday. He goes into the temple. He leaves and he goes back out of town. On Monday, he comes back in. He goes into the temple and he disrupts everything because of the extortion that was taking place. He leaves and goes out of town. He comes back now and it's Tuesday morning. It is on Tuesday that this event takes place. And he confronts some religious leaders who want nothing more than to put him to death. And so what do they do? They comprise this statement, this question, in hopes of trapping him, in hopes that they can accuse him and turn him against the Jews or turn him against the Romans. They will have their way at the end of the week because they will falsely judge him. He will be crucified on Friday. But on Tuesday, he encounters these people. And here's what happens. And they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap him in his talk. And they came and said to him, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the ways of God. Sounds like a politician talking, doesn't it? And then they say this to him. Is it lawful 
to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? Now, this is not just a casual question. This is not just a question about should we pay taxes. This ran deep in the Jews' minds. Because the denarius was a requirement for every male to pay this to Rome. And that denarius was a symbol of their subjugation to the Roman Empire. But not only that, there was an image which violated in their mind the second commandment. An image of Caesar on it. And that image of Caesar was to remind them that he was their king. But not only their king, but Caesar said that he was their God. And this was infuriating to them. And they hated the thought of that. And what's interesting is they ask him this question to trap him. They ask, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar? If he says yes, he would turn all of the Jews against him and they would say there's no way he can be the Messiah because the Messiah has come to redeem us from our enemies. But if he turned and said, it is wrong to pay taxes to Caesar, then he would be accused of insurrection, be arrested by the Roman government, and quite frankly, put to death. And so they think we got him. Man, we spent all this time drafting this question. This is the greatest question of all of humanity. Jesus is about to do himself in. But they forget that they're dealing with the ageless creator of life. He's already been there. He's been at the end from the very beginning. So what does he say to them? He says, but knowing their hypocrisy. Why is there hypocrisy? The Pharisees and the Herodians hated each other. They hated each other. The Pharisees despised Rome and their occupation. The Herodians thought, well, let's tap into the leadership of Rome and it's okay to pay. So he recognized right away, these are two enemies who have come together in a hypocritical way to trap him. And then he says this, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. Apparently he didn't even have one. And neither did his disciples. So somebody gives him a denarius and they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said one word, Caesar's. And here's the brilliance of this. And Jesus said to them, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled and they shut up and they ran away. And they never came back to him with another question like that. What is Jesus saying here? He's saying, listen, when it comes to our life as Christians, we are citizens of two kingdoms. We are citizens of earth, but we are also citizens of heaven. And Jesus gives us this understanding and this picture of how we are to live in these two worlds. We're in this world, but we're not of this world, but we're stuck in this world until we're called to the next world. And so what do we do? How do we respond? And from this passage, the Lord Jesus teaches us, I believe, five things. And we're going to discover these five truths that will all flow out of this passage, will flow into the teaching of Peter and Paul, and help us to understand how do you and I deal with this whole issue of politics and, 
and, and government. Now, I just want you to know, today I may make nobody happy. Because some of you might say you want me to, to speak harshly about an individual or protect an individual, and some other's gonna say, yeah, you should condemn this and condemn that. And you may not be happy at all with me. But here's what I'm seeking to do is please the heart of God when it comes to this issue of how we need to deal with it. So I'm gonna pray and we're gonna jump right in because I gotta get going fast. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your wisdom. Thank you for your instruction. I pray, Father, that right now we would put all political parties aside. I pray, Father, right now that we would put candidates aside. I pray, Father, right now that we would put our own emotions aside and that, Father, in this moment, we would listen to what your word says to me, not the person next to me, me, as we approach our responsibility as citizens of heaven, living as citizens on earth. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Here we go. You ready? Number one. We are to be good citizens on earth as we submit to governing authorities. Jesus is saying, you're to be good citizens on earth as you submit to governing authorities. And you might say, whoa, 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 you don't know my government. Well, you don't know theirs. Their government was Nero, the most infamous, um, most wicked emperor who ever lived in the Roman Empire. And what is Jesus saying? He's saying, listen, you have an advantage from your government. Some of the things that you have as a result of Rome being here is for your benefit. There's somewhat of a social setting of protection. There's a police state where they're taking care of you. They're taking care of the roads. You have court systems. You have a lot of privileges. When Rome began to take care of the world, there came to be known what was, was called the Pax Romana. And the Pax Romana means the peace of Rome. And because of Rome governing all the countries, for the first time in human history, it was safe to travel from one country to another without being killed by marauders or thieves or other tribes and nations. And so there was a certain amount of protection that was taking place. And what Jesus is saying is this, render to Caesar what he's due, but nothing more. Give to him what he's due, but nothing more. And he's saying to us that we, as citizens of heaven, are to be good citizens as we adhere to the responsibilities of submitting to the government. Now, the apostle Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 13, verses 1 through 7. Listen to what he says. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval. He says, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath for wrongdoers. Now, here's what he's saying, basically. He's saying that we are in a situation that God has ordained government. He continues. He says, therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes for the authorities or ministers of God attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed them. 
Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. What is the role of government? Let me give you real quickly what the role of government is. First of all, government is ordained by God. You see it not only here, but in the garden where God tells Adam and Eve to subdue and control the earth. God gives them the right to govern the earth and all things and being a good steward. So it's ordained by God. Secondly, government is to be organized for our good. Government is to help protect and create a civil environment where we can thrive. Thirdly, government is to be opposed to evil. It is to punish crime and evil among us. And lastly, Christians are called to obey the laws of government as long as government does not contradict the word of God. That's what we're called to. Now, that means this. We're to adhere to the laws of the land. We're to pay our taxes. We're to follow the laws. There's speed limit signs. 55 means nothing to us. <laughs> but the reality is we are called to obey those things. And if we're good citizens, we're to do everything we can to be a good citizen, to follow the authority set by God himself. It is not wrong to submit to government. But it is not right, when government begins to go beyond the bounds of scripture, and you're going to hear me say this as your pastor, when government begins to call us to do things that are contrary to the word of God, we have no obligation to obey the government. We have none. And when the government is pushing us in a box and says we are to do something that's in violation to the truth of God's word, we are free not to because our loyalty, first of all, is to Christ above all things. Let me give you an illustration. During COVID, there were a lot of rules, a lot of things that were going around. Our elders had made the commitment that we would live and make decisions by three things. Number one, scripture. What does scripture inform us to do? Secondly, the Holy Spirit. How is he leading us through this process? Third would be science. What does science say? And then on top of that, we could say that we were seeking to mitigate the spread of COVID among us. So we did certain things. We practiced social distancing. We began to change our services up a little bit. We gave people the option to wear or not wear a mask. But then the government began to have an overreach on us and demand that we not meet at all. Or that if we do meet, we all wear a mask. And if we do meet and wear a mask, we're not allowed to sing. We're not allowed to talk. And every bit of that was going beyond the bounds of what scripture informs us as a body of Christ. Trying to control our freedom in worshiping in a way as we sought the privilege and the heart of the Father. And in those cases, we did not comply. Why? Because we were following scripture we were following the leadership of the Holy Spirit, and we felt that the government was an overreach. Let me just remind you of a couple of things. Just because something is legal does not make it moral. Just because something is legal does not make it moral. Same-sex marriages are legal, but that doesn't mean they're moral. And if the government demands that we perform same-sex unions, which in our eyes are immoral, we will not comply. We will not. The second thing is this. Just because something is illegal does not mean it's immoral. 
If the government tells us that we cannot preach the word of God in public, we can't read scripture in public, and we do, that's not immoral. Just two weeks ago, a young man in Wisconsin was arrested for reading the scriptures on a park bench. Across the street happened to be a transgender event that was happening. He was not preaching to them. He didn't even know that was planned. He just began to read out of Galatians. And he was arrested and put in jail for hate speech. You see, what happens is, when the government comes against and goes beyond the bounds of scripture, we are not compelled to submit. William Wilberforce, a great man of God in England, fought his entire political year for the abolition of slavery. He was the only man that spoke out against it. Many times, William was in jail for speaking about it. On one occasion, as he's in jail, one of his friends from parliament comes and he says, why, William, what are you doing in there? And William said, my brother, what are you doing out there? And so what we knew is we submit where we can. But when the government pushes us beyond the bounds of scripture, we are free not to comply. As good citizens, we submit to governing authorities as long as they do not contradict the teaching of God's word. Here's the second thing. We are to be good citizens on earth as we engage in civic duties. Here's something we need to understand. Just because you're a believer doesn't mean that you're not to be involved in civic or political work within a community. When, when you look at the book of Acts, and you, um, Acts, uh, Romans, and chapter 16, the apostle Paul is listing all the names of all these individuals who are making an impact with the message of the gospel. One of them is in Caesar's household. One of them is in the emperor's court. One of them has one of the highest positions in the Roman Empire who is a child of God and who is making a difference within the very house of Caesar. The very one who's going to behead the Apostle Paul Nero. And so the, government, the, the scriptures give us the privilege to be involved in those areas. Peter puts it this way. He says, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. He says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people. People who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. And if we're servants of God, we're servants of our community, and we should have opportunity to be involved in the political arena. Now, there's some people who say, oh, uh, uh, Christians should never step into politics. Really? If that's the case, I want you to think of our founding fathers. And the founding fathers were greatly committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. And if they had stayed out of it, we'd still be under British rule today. Let me give you just some of where they were, loving Jesus and loving the, the country. Of the 56 signers of the Declaration, 27 had degrees from seminary. Reverend John Witherspoon oversaw the printing of the first Bible by Congress in 1782. And on the flyleaf of that Bible was a note written for the children of our public schools that they may know the redeemer of their souls. Went to every public school in America. Charles Thompson, Secretary of Congress, was responsible for the first translation of the Bible in America and published the Thompson Bible. 
Benjamin Rush founded the first Bible society in America, the Philadelphia Bible Society. Francis Hawkins was responsible for printing the first hymn book in America. The signers of the Declaration of Independence were responsible for starting 121 Bible societies in eight years. John Adams and Benjamin Rush met together and they were discussing, can this thing really work? And Adams says, yes, only if we repent and trust in the sovereignty of God. And he writes this, the principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the principles of Christianity. I will now avow that I did believe and now believe that those principles of Christianity are as eternal and immutable as the general attributes and characteristics of God. These were our founding fathers. And our founding fathers were the ones who were committed to being involved. Now, let let me just say a couple of things to us. What does that mean for us? As believers and good citizens of a country where we have the freedom to speak and to elect our leaders, one of the greatest responsibilities, and I say the moral responsibility of every child of God is to vote, is to vote. Because that gives us the opportunity to speak, to cast a ballot, and to support a candidate that we feel supports our values and our morals. And I want to say today, if you're not registered to vote, let me encourage you, register to vote. Do you know that in the last several elections, 25% of Christians did not even vote? And yet it's those 25% who criticize the most. And I would just say to you, if you don't vote, don't complain. Don't complain. But I would say this, we have the opportunity to do that. And for some of you, you have the opportunity to go before this. You know what I believe ought to happen in our communities? I believe Christians ought to be the ones who are on the commissions. I believe Christians ought to be in our school boards. I believe Christians ought to be leading in our communities. I believe Christians ought to be able to have a say in politics. I believe Christians ought to be involved at every single level. Because as good citizens, one of the responsibilities we have as citizens is to participate in a a, a process by which we can bring great change in our culture. So I think that we're supposed to submit to governing authorities. We should be involved in civil activities. But since we're citizens of the kingdom of God and citizens of of earth, we should be bringing principles of the kingdom to earth. Here's the third point. We are to be good citizens on earth by modeling justice, kindness, and humility. We are to be modeling these things. Too often we spend our time pointing our fingers at people who are not like us instead of being like Jesus. We are to model justice. We are to model kindness or mercy and humility. Micah 6.8, he says this, he has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God. He's writing about those in our culture who are the most vulnerable, those who are the most underserved, those are the ones who are treated with most injustice, those who are marginalized, those who are left with no voice and no power, we are to be involved in their lives. 
David writes in Psalm 82, how long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. Again, what is the role of believers? We are to be bringing justice and mercy and kindness and humility to the most vulnerable in our culture. And the church should be leading the way. And by the way, who's the most vulnerable in every single culture? Children. In every culture in the world, children. There are children who are caught in the span of poverty. And as a result of that, they can't seem to ever get out of it. There's some children that are put in sweatshops around the world to work, labor, and, and with undignified situations, and they end up dying in those situations. There's some children that are forced into sex trafficking, and we see that more now than we've ever seen with our borders being so porous and so many children coming through with no parents. Where do you think they're going? They're heading into sex trafficking places that they can never escape from. I don't know if you saw the movie, The Sound of Freedom. It's an incredible movie. If you've not seen it, I want to encourage you to see it. It's a hard movie to watch. But here's the truth of the movie. It so disgusted me with how humans can treat children the most vulnerable. But even more disgusting to me were the organizations, the politics, and those entertainment areas such as Disney fighting to keep the message from being out there. And the United States is the number one in the world in sex trafficking of children. And we see that and we get disgusted. But there's another one. The most vulnerable children in our nation are still in the womb. They're still in the womb. And what we're seeing is with abortion, 64 million children have been aborted. That's equivalent to the same number of people who were killed on 9-11 every single day. 365 days a year. And what's the most grievous thing about all of this is we have a party that has called the abortion of children, and I'm quoting, a sacred right. Can you imagine that? That we're going to fight for this sacred right. And we're thankful for Roe v. Wade being overturned. But since Roe v. Wade has been overturned, there has been a rise of hostility. There's been a rise of anger. There's been a rise of animosity to the point that the Democratic Party, as their major platform, is that of abortion. And it is their sacred right. It's demonic. Because what it says is our right. The argument no longer is whether it's a child. Science has proven that it is a child at the moment of conception. The argument now is can I kill it? And it is my right to do so. So as we get into situations like that, they become angry at pro-lifers. And here's their argument against pro-lifers. Stay with me. The argument is this. Well, you only care about them until they're born. Afterwards, you don't care about the sanctity of life. And I would say that could be a valid argument. 
Because there's some individuals that only want to protect the life of the child until they're born. But the sanctity of life has to go all the way from the womb to the tomb and taking care of all areas of life. But here's the smokescreen. Because the people who make that charge usually don't care about anybody else beyond that anyway. Where the church should be in this? In this whole thing of protecting the most vulnerable? I believe that the sanctity of human life goes for the whole life. And for an individual who would say to me as a Christian, you only care about when they're born. After that, you don't care anymore. Well, let me see. Let's think about what we do at Scott's Hill. We support Lifeline Pregnancy Center. And we send people to be involved in that on a regular basis. But not only that, we support the Baptist Children's Home. Because we're supporting kids who are coming out of broken, dysfunctional families where they can be adopted or fostered and loved on. But we also promote domestic violence shelters where we're helping women who have come out of these difficult things. We're helping women to be able to um, um, deal with the issues of an unplanned pregnancy and how they can grow. We're also helping homeless people in our culture. And when I think of all the things that we are doing here at Scotts Hill, we're going way beyond just simply the birth of a child. So how do, what do we do? What do you and I do to help protect the most vulnerable? Here's what I would say. Number one, volunteer at Frontline Ministries. Lifeline Pregnancy Center, wonderful ministry. First Fruits or Vigilant Hope, homeless ministry. The Baptist Children's Home of North Carolina. Adopt kids, foster kids. We have people in our church who are fostering children and adopting children, pulling them out of these situations and being the church and hope for a culture. Secondly, support them financially. We support all of these, in, these organizations at Scotts Hill, and my wife and I personally support them and more because we're committed from the womb to the tomb. Here's the last thing. Vote only for candidates who are pro-life. Vote only for candidates who are pro-life. Support only those who are absolutely committed to the reality of life. And here's why I say that. Because when a person has no problem with killing an unborn child, they really don't care about the education of poor children. They don't care about the struggle of underprivileged. They don't care about the homeless in our culture. Look at what's happening in our world and you can see the lack of compassion and empathy. We as a church are to model these things for the most vulnerable. Number four, we are to be good citizens on earth by serving as a moral compass for our society. We are to be good citizens as we serve as a moral compass. What do I mean by that? That means that you and I are to, to live our life in such a way that we are distinctively different from the world. That the principles by which you and I live by are the principles of heaven, not the principles of earth. It's the truth of heaven, not the philosophy of earth. 
That you and I have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit. In the word of God, we have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have truth. We have the character of Christ before us. And you and I are to be salt. We're to be light. We are to live in a way that the world sees we're different. Paul writes to Titus and he says this. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. So that an opponent may, uh, so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. If we lived our lives in such a way that we become the moral compass, every compass points to true north, and every believer should point to Jesus. And as we live our lives, we are to live in such a way that people see a morality living in us and through us. Got a name, a guy by the name of Jim Black writes about when nations die. And he says that when a nation begins to die, there are these 10 elements that will be obvious. Increase in lawlessness. Hmm. Loss of education, economic discipline, rising bureaucracy, more government, decline in education. Weakening of cultural foundations, a loss of respect for traditions, increase in materialism, a rise in immorality and acceptance of homosexuality, decay in religious belief, and devaluing of human life. By the way, he wrote this book 30 years ago. 30 years ago. And he says in that book, for the first time in American history, we have all 10 in our culture. And so we have a culture that's drifting from any kind of a moral compass. So what is the the, the responsibility of children of God? I believe it's very clear. I think number one, we are to live lives distinctively different from the world. We are to be different. Secondly, we as a body of Christ are to be involved in our community in such a way that we're loving the hurting and the vulnerable among us. Thirdly, we are to be in a situation where we're looking to the leadership of those who are working in our culture, in our government, and in our nation, and we are to align ourselves as best we can with people who will support Godly morality. Now, let me tell you this. People will say, you can't legislate morality. (laughs) You can legislate immorality. And here's another thing. We cannot legislate morality, but we are to uphold the moral principles of God's word. And so one of the things that we should see as non-negotiables This week, I studied a lot of people. I read a lot of people. I listened to a lot of godly men and women speaking about our culture from a biblical worldview. And I'm just thinking, okay, what can we be? Because people accuse Christians a lot of times of being a single issue candidate. Y'all only vote for one thing. I don't think we need to be a single issue voters. We need to have multiple issues. So what are the issues and the moral issues that we as believers should stand on as the bedrock of our faith and understanding what God wants to do to create a strong community. Let me give you, I'm going to give you some of them. They're not all of them. The sanctity of human life. That should be non-negotiable. Non-negotiable. That we are called to protect life 
period. Every single child from the moment of conception is created in the image of God. And so we are to pursue the sanctity of human life, the sanctity of biblical marriage that we see clearly in Scripture that it is a healthy, godly family unit that God creates to provide a healthy community and civic community. How about this one? The sanctity of the family. The sanctity of the family unit. We're living in a time where our culture wants to undermine the family unit. We're living in a time now where teachers want to indoctrinate our children and the government says they're theirs and our cry should be hands off my kids. They're not yours. They're not yours. They belong to God and we ought to protect the sanctity of the family. Here's a fourth one. The protection of our civil and religious liberties. We should stand to protect those because those are our rights of free speech. But not only that, the right to be able to declare and to proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if we didn't have that, it shouldn't keep us from doing it. But to have it gives us the opportunity to continue to advance the cause of the kingdom. And here's the last one. The enforcement of state and federal laws. Because those are the things that keep us safe in an environment. Now, there are others There are others. But let me say something to you. If these are the main things that we are to support, and there's a political party that doesn't stand on any of those things, listen carefully. Our loyalty is not to be to an elephant or a donkey. Our loyalty is to the Lamb of God who is slain from the foundations of the earth. That's our loyalty. And you and I, when we take our last breath and we enter into eternity, we're not going to be standing before a Republican or a Democrat or an Independent. We're going to be standing before the King of Kings who rules all. And when our Savior comes back, he will not be riding a donkey or an elephant. He will be on a white horse. And so what I'm saying is this, our loyalty is to the principles of the kingdoms of God. Our loyalty is to the principle of the heart of God. Our loyalty is to the principles of those things that bring morality into our culture. And one day you and I are going to stand before God and we're going to give an account of everything we have ever done and supported. And I want to be on the side of what God calls true. Regardless of policy, regardless of politics, regardless of parties, that's where we are to stand. And the charge is for each one of us is to choose candidates that best align with moral values. Now, I just have to say this. What do you do when you're in an election And none of your choices are good. (laughs) What do you do when you're in an election and the choices that you have would not be your first choices? Let me say a couple of things. Number one, when you elect a political leader, you are not electing a spiritual leader. You're not. You're not electing a spiritual leader. All leaders are broken, they're flawed, our system is flawed, it's corrupt, 
All you have to do is look at what's happening now. So what do you do? Christians have a real struggle with this. When there are two candidates that neither one is really good, then you have to ask which one best carries the moral compass for our culture. And you have to say, now what do you do when their character really doesn't match with that? I've dealt with Christians, they've dealt with this thing. There were some people who Christians go to the polls to vote, but they cannot vote for either of the candidates because they feel like it would be against their own conviction to support. They vote for everything else on the docket, but they cannot vote for that. That's their freedom to do so by the Holy Spirit. Then there are other people who will say, no, I'm going to vote for the things that are the most moral that will support our country and bring us back to a place where we will be strong, civically, and healthy. And so what do they do? They just vote for the candidate that's going to be the best. And there are others like me who go into a voting booth and I recognize their flaws in all people. I would not have maybe voted for this person up to this point, but given the choices that I have, I'm going to have to do a couple of things. I'm going to vote for the one that best supports the moral compass that I believe our country needs. I'm going to throw up in my mouth and then I'm going to thank God for his sovereignty. That's what I got to do. And sometimes I don't throw up in my mouth. It's only, no. (laughs) So those are difficult things. But here's the issue. What are the things that would bless the heart of God as a believer? And, And I know that we align in parties. But the principles of the kingdom and I'm not going to use the word I wanted to use because it might, I was going to say the principles of the kingdom trump all others. See, (laughs) you can't even say that anymore, can you? The principles of the kingdom overshadow and empower the philosophies of the world. So as a child of God, pursue a moral compass. Here's the last thing. It's since we're trusting in the sovereignty of God, we're to be good citizens on earth by praying for this nation and its leaders. You know what? Here's the thing. We talk about this, but this is the one thing we don't do. Oh, we'll get in our circles, we'll complain, and we'll gripe, and we'll say this or this or this or this about this and this and this, but do, do we pray? And it's through prayer that God moves the hearts of kings like water in his hands. Matter of fact, Paul writes to Timothy. He says, first of all, then I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people, for kings, and all who are in high places. Notice how many prayers he's saying. He's saying supplications, those are petitions, prayers, general prayers, intercessions. I intercede, I stand between them and you, oh God, and I ask you to change their hearts in this. And thanksgivings, Lord, thank you for the country we have. Thank you for the freedoms we have. Thank you for the opportunities that we have to make changes. And Father, stir me towards those things in high places and peaceful, quiet and godly and dignified life. You know what that means? That means that we're to live as good, godly citizens, bringing about peace with the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we pray, 
We trust God to change hearts. So, as I said, I may have made nothing but enemies today. But my concern is not so much the political parties as much as the moral principles that God is calling us to. And I want to say, there are a lot more issues that we can talk about. And you may have certain issues and certain issues. And I'll say, no one party can ever carry everything that needs to be done. So what do I do? I vote for the individuals that best support the moral passion of the heart of God. And we, we as a church, love our community with grace and kindness and goodness. And we serve them and we help them. And we become the beacon of light to every community of how the community can be transformed by the love of Jesus and the word of God and the kingdom, the principles of the kingdom of God. Submit to government. Be involved where you can. Usher in righteousness and holiness. Set an example of purity. Be the moral compass for people in your lives and pray, pray, pray for our nation that God would wave back that tsunami of immorality and we would see a fresh awakening come through this country. Not so my life can be better and convenient, but so the kingdom of God would be advanced through the power of the gospel. I want to encourage you to pray in those lines. Let's close. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for this message. I know, Father, that in our hearts we're processing all kinds of things, but Father, would you, Holy Spirit, show us those principles that are non-negotiable. And we stand on those because we stand with our Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. And we hope that God uses this message in you to transform you more into the image of Christ. If you have any questions about our church or you want to learn more about Jesus, visit our website at scottshill.org slash next steps. Till next time.